Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, attending today. My name is Eric Kinane. I'm an attorney at Goulston & Stores, and I co-chair the estate planning committee with Maggie Lopez at R & Fox Schiff. Um, I want to start by thanking both the members and the chairs of the three committees that are going to be presenting here today. Um, I know everyone has committed a lot of time and effort to today's program, uh, and so we're excited. We're excited to have all of you. Uh, so our speakers today are going to be Emily Berlin and Kirsa Johnson from our New Developments Committee. Emily is a colleague of mine at Goulson & Stores and curses with Hemingway & Barnes. Um, we have Jason Benitez and Stephen Cunningham from our Tax Law Committee. Jason is with Goodwin Proctor and Stephen is with uh, Sullivan & Worcester. And finally, we have Susan Robb uh, from our Public Policy Committee. Susan's with Dave Pitney. Um, so please don't uh, hesitate to ask questions along the way. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand things over to Emily and Kirsa, who's going to get things going with our new developments. Thanks very much, Eric. Uh, as, as Eric mentioned, I'm Kirsa Johnson. I'm an associate at Hemingway and Barnes. We're going to be presenting to you, we have seven cases that um, were we considered relevant to discuss at this mid-year review. Um, so, and they should all be in your materials. We'll kind of jump around in them. I'll introduce them as I start. So the first case we're going to discuss is the matter of the estate of Ronald Birkenfeld. This is a December, 2023 case out of the appeals court dealing with a standing requirement for challenging the appointment of a personal representative. Ronald Birkenfeld died in 2020, naming his wife Pamela as the sole beneficiary of his will and intentionally admitting his children from previous relationships. Pamela was also named as the primary beneficiary under his revocable trust. She had a testamentary power to appoint remaining trust property among Ronald's sons and any unappointed property would be distributed to Ronald's sons, one of whom was Bradley Birkenfeld. After Ronald's death, Bradley filed suit against Pamela claiming unjust enrichment fraud, tortious interference with expectancy. Those claims were dismissed by the Superior Court, a decision that was upheld by the Appeals Court, and Bradley was found to not have a legally protected interest in the trust. That case was actually discussed at the year-end review in June, so I won't discuss it here, but I mention it because it does have bearing on the decision here. Um, Bradley also filed a petition with the Probate and Family Court seeking to have his brother appointed as PR instead of Pamela. Notably, he didn't challenge the validity of the will, just Pamela's appointment, arguing that she was not a suitable choice. Bradley argued that he had standing to challenge Pamela's appointment because he met the MEPC definition of an interested person. The MEPC defines an interested person to include heirs, devisees, and children. The appeals court looked at the MEPC and noted that an interested person can challenge the validity of a will, and an interested person needs to receive notice when the appointment of a personal representative is challenged, but the MEPC does not specifically address who can challenge the appointment of a personal representative in a will. Because the code is silent, as to that matter, the appeals court looked at common law. Under common law, in order to challenge the appointment of a personal representative, the person must have a legal interest in the estate. The court found that Bradley did not have a legal interest in the estate. He was intentionally omitted from the will, 
and referencing their earlier decision, the court found that his beneficial interest in the trust was that of a contingent remainder beneficiary. Finding that Bradley didn't have standing to object to the appointment of Pamela as personal representative of the estate, the appeals court allowed the motion to dismiss Bradley's petition and to strike his objections. The second case I'll discuss is Fernas v. Cerrone, which is a no November 2023 case from the SJC re regarding the enforceability of an agreement to sever joint tenancy. Anthony Cerrone and Jane Fernas owned property as joint tenants. After a period of joint ownership, they sought to sever their joint tenancy, tenancy through partition. They entered into an agreement whereby Anthony would remove his possessions from the property and continue to sell, send his share of the mortgage payments to Fernas. Fernas, in turn, would make, make the mortgage payments and either list the property for sale by June of 2020 or refinance and remove Anthony from the mortgage by September of that year. The agreement was brought before the probate and family court and incorporated into a final decree on the partition. Neither party agreed, neither party objected, pardon, pardon me, neither party objected to the, to the final decree. Anthony and later his daughter made regular payments, um, made regular mortgage payments to Fernas until spring of 2020. After Anthony's death in June of that same year, his daughter sent a check representing Anthony's remaining share of the outstanding mortgage payments to Fernas. Fernas refused to accept the payments, stating that upon Anthony's death, the ownership of the property reverted to her as the surviving joint owner. Anthony's daughter filed a complaint against Fernas, claiming that she had failed to comply with the terms of the decree. The case made its way to the SJC, where the court looked at whether the joint tenancy was severed and whether the probate court had jurisdiction over that matter. The SJC ruled that the joint tenancy was severed for two reasons. First, the unity of possession, which is one of the four unities of joint tenancy, had been severed. The unity of possession requires that each joint tenant have a right to possess the entire property. Because Anthony was required to remove all of his belongings under the agreement, he lost the right to possess and enjoy the property. It was a change to his legal rights with regard to the property and therefore severed that unity. They also disagreed with Fernas's argument that the tenancy had not been severed because the property had not been sold. Sale of the property was not required to sever the joint tenancy. Unlike the case cited by Fernas, where two joint tenants sought partition of a joint tenancy by sale and one of the joint tenants died before the final decree was issued. Here, a final decree had been issued and the agreement between the two parties had been incorporated into the decree. The SJC also ruled that the probate court did have jurisdiction to enforce the agreement and Anthony's estate did have standing to pursue the claim. The probate court entered the partition as a final judgment and therefore had jurisdiction over all matters related to the partition decree. Because the decree was enforceable, Anthony's estate retained his share of the interest and his estate had standing to pursue that claim. The third case um, is the estate of Jablonski, which is an August 2023 case from the Supreme Judicial Court, dealing with the latent ambiguity in a charitable remainder gift under a testamentary pet trust. Teresa Jablonski's will left her entire estate to a testamentary trust for the benefit of her pet dog and any other pets who survived her. The will went on to provide that upon the death of any surviving pets, the remaining trust property was to be distributed to one or more charitable organizations chosen by the trustees of the trust. 
There were no other beneficiaries named in the will, and the will did not include a contingent remainder clause. The decedent's dog predeceased her by two years, and at the time of her death, she had no pets. The decedent's niece filed a petition to probate her will, to which the decedent's other heirs objected, stating that the sole bequest under the will, which required the creation of a pet trust, had lapsed because the decedent's pet predeceased her. The case proceeded through litigation and it made its way to the SJC, where the court considered first whether a testamentary trust, whether the testamentary trust had failed, and if so, whether the decedent's estate was to pass by intestate succession, and next, whether the charitable remainder provision was valid under the doctrine of accelerated remainders, which provides that a remainder interest may take effect immediately upon the failure of a prior gift. The SJC agreed with the objectors and the probate court that the testamentary trust had failed when the decedent's pet died. As to whether the remainder of the estate should pass by intestacy or to a yet to be named charitable beneficiary, the SJC ruled that extrinsic evidence was needed to resolve the ambiguity of whether this decedent intended for the charitable gift to be given effect, regardless of whether her pet survived her. Whereas the probate court had found that the decedent didn't intend to condition the charitable remainder on the pet's survival because the testamentary trust was the sole beneficiary of the will and there was no alternative gift in the event that her pet predeceased her, the SJC disagreed and found that there was a genuine issue of material fact as to whether that was indeed the case. This case raises issues regarding latent ambiguity in charitable gifts when no specific charitable charity has been named, and when a lapsed gift passes by intestacy due to lapses due to a lapsed and invalid trust. The final case I'll discuss is the case of Schwalm versus Schwalm, which is a July 2023 case from the Appeals Court of Massachusetts dealing with the right of remainder beneficiaries to information from a trustee. William Schwalm created a trust for the benefit of his surviving spouse and his children from a prior marriage. After his death, his spouse was the sole trustee and sole beneficiary during her lifetime. The children were to receive any remaining trust property after the spouse's death. After, after the decedent's death, the children reached out to the spouse as trustee requesting certain information, including account statements, beneficiary changes, and an inventory and accounting of the trust. The spouse denied the requests, relying in part on trust language that gave her broad discretion when deciding what, if any, information to provide to permissible distributees or qualified beneficiaries. The children sought a declaration from the probate and family court, arguing that the spouse was required to produce the requested information. The spouse moved for dismissal, which the probate court granted, stating that the trust was clear and un unambiguous as to the trustee's discretion to provide information to the beneficiaries. The children appealed that decision. On appeal, they conceded that under the MUTC, they were not qualified beneficiaries entitled to information, but that instead their right to information came from common law. Here I'll note that in the 2020 case, 2021 case of the Kalekia Family Irrevocable Trust, which interprets the MUTC on this issue of qualified beneficiaries and upon which the children seemingly rely, the appeals court ruled that beneficiaries did not meet the definition of qualified beneficiaries because they were not currently el eligible to receive trust property. The Kalekia decision has been criticized by multiple experts as not reflecting the general understanding of the MUTC, 
which states that qualified beneficiaries include those who would become eligible to receive distributions were the event triggering the termination of the trust to occur. And that event will typically be the death or deaths of beneficiaries who are currently eligible. The appeals court did agree that the trustees have a common law duty to maintain clear and accurate records of the trust's administration, but that there is no default duty to provide those records to a beneficiary who is not a quote, qualified beneficiary under the METC. I'll note here that this aspect of the decision has also been criticized is not in accord with the general understanding of a trustee's fiduciary duties. Um, and with that, I will turn it over to Emily for the other three cases. Thanks, Kirsha. Uh, again, I'm, I'm Emily Berlin. I'm an associate at Goulston and Stores. At first, I'll discuss Jones versus Jones, which was decided by the appeals court in August 2023. The court considered a number of issues in this case the meatiest and most notable of which was whether an irrevocable trust could be included in the marital estate for equitable division purposes. In this case, a Massachusetts couple divorced after almost 20 years of marriage. They had two children together, and during the marriage, both had been employed outside the home and had contributed equally to raising the children. During the marriage, the couple's lifestyle was subsidized by the wife's mother, who, in the words of the court, showered the family with gifts, whether monetary or experiential, likely counting on receiving additional gifts or inheritance from the wife's mother. The couple had saved minimally for retirement and had not saved sufficiently for their children's college educations. The wife had three sets of assets or interests, which were at the heart of this appeal, all given to the wife by her mother. First, an irrevocable trust for the wife's benefit established by the wife's mother. Second, an interest in real property in Michigan given to the wife by her mother. And third, a CD funded by the wife with money given to her again by her mother. The trial court had included all three of these assets or interests in the marital estate for purposes of equitable division. As a result, the divorce judgment provided that the wife would retain her interest in the irrevocable trust trust in Michigan real property, but correspondingly pay almost $1.2 million to the husband in annual installments with interest over the next 10 years, and the wife would transfer 60% of the CD to the husband. The wife raised five issues on appeal, all related to these assets or interests. First, the wife argued that the trial court erred by including the irrevocable trust in the marital estate for purposes of equitable division. But the appeals court found no error. Whether a trust is includable in the marital estate turns on whether a party's interest in the trust is a quote, fixed and enforceable property right. To determine the nature of a party's interest, the court looked to the attributes of the trust. Here, the court emphasized that the wife would receive a mandatory distribution of the entirety of the trust property at her mother's death. The trustees could not reduce or divest the wife of her interest. And so, the court concluded, the wife's interest in the trust was indeed fixed. The court acknowledged the inclusion of a spendthrift provision and a delay of distribution provision in the trust instrument, but determined that these provisions did not change the nature of the wife's fixed interest in the trust. The court reasoned that even if the trustees were to delay the mandatory distribution, the wife remained entitled to the trust funds 
and had the power to appoint the trust property to the beneficiaries of her own estate at her death. In addition, the trust only allowed the trustees to delay the distribution of trust funds for compelling reasons. Because the trustees' ability to delay the mandatory distribution was limited, the court held that the wife's fixed right in the trust was also an enforceable right. And so the appeals court agreed that the trust should be included in the marital estate. Second, the wife argued that Michigan law should have applied in determining whether the wife's interest in the Michigan real property from her mother was includable in the marital estate. She claimed that under Michigan law, that property should be excluded from the estate. The appeals court, however, affirmed that Massachusetts law applied and that under Massachusetts law, even real property located outside of the Commonwealth could be included in the marital estate. Third, the wife argued that the contested assets or interests should be excluded from the marital estate because they originated with her mother. The appeals court held that the trial court reasonably concluded that gifts from the wife's mother were woven into the fabric of the marriage. Even if the couple did not use these specific assets, they relied on their existence and were able to achieve a certain standard of living as a result. Fourth and fifth, the wife raised two arguments about how the $1.2 million payment was calculated. She argued that the trial court should have taken into consideration market fluctuations and adverse tax consequences to her but the court determined the record was insufficient to rule on these issues. Turning now to another appeals court case, also decided in August 2023, Lodigiani v. Perret. Here, the father had a life estate in the family home, and three of his children were the remaindermen. The issue presented to the appeals court was whether the trial court judge, when apportioning the proceeds from a partition sale among the children, have the discretion to take into account damage to the property caused by one child, even though the father was still living in the home as a life tenant at the time of the damage. The father and mother had previously transferred the family home to the children and reserved a life estate for themselves. The mother later passed away and one of the children, Nina, moved into the home to care for the father. Nina was a hoarder, unfortunately, and over a number of years, her siblings expressed concern about the state of the home and asked her to resolve the situation. Eventually, they told her she had to vacate the property. The father moved himself out and the other children prepared the home to be sold, costing them significant time and expense to clean it up. The father and other children then filed a joint petition for a partition with Nina as respondent. The father sought to surrender his life to save and asked that the proceeds be distributed among the three children remaindermen, with the other children compensated for the expense of cleaning up Nina's mess. The trial court allowed the sale and partition, but the judge held that she did not have the discretion to compensate the other children for Nina's share of the sale proceeds. Instead, the trial judge concluded that the other children should seek reimbursement from the father, and later, after he passed away, from his estate, because he had been the life tenant at the time of the hoarding, and he had had a duty to preserve and protect the property. As a result, the trial judge ordered the sale proceeds be divided evenly among Nina and her siblings. The appeals court disagreed, concluding that the trial court did in fact have the discretion to factor in the damage caused by Nina 
when apportioning the sale proceeds. The court explained that the purpose of a partition action is to make a just and equitable division of the proceeds. While there is a presumption of an equal division, this presumption may be rebutted. The court determined that in this case, Nina had a duty as a remainderman not to impair the interests of her co-remainderman, namely her siblings, and that it would be against common law and common sense to hold the father alone liable for Nina's property damage, and that accordingly, the trial court had the discretion to consider her property damage in the partition action. Finally, I'll discuss the matter of the state of Slavin, which was decided by the Supreme Judicial Court in July, 2023. In this case, the decedent had been murdered in 2016, and soon thereafter, the decedent's daughter was designated voluntary personal representative of the decedent's estate. The daughter and other family members believed the circumstances of the decedent's death gave rise to a wrongful death claim and sought to bring suit. The daughter became concerned that she would not have the authority to bring suit as voluntary personal representative of the decedent's estate. As a result, in 2020, four years after the decedent's death, the daughter filed a petition for formal probate and asked to be appointed personal representative by the court. The general rule under Massachusetts law is that an informal or formal probate or appointment proceeding may not be initiated more than three years after the decedent's death. The statute provides for a limited number of exceptions to this general rule one of which is that an appointment proceeding, quote, relating to an estate in which there has been a prior appointment, may be brought more than three years after the decedent's death. The daughter acknowledged that her petition for formal probate was untimely under the general rule, but argued that this prior appointment exception should apply due to her previous designation as a voluntary personal representative. However, the trial court disagreed and dismissed her petition as untimely. On direct appellate review, the SJC reversed the trial court, holding that the daughter's designation as voluntary personal representative was indeed a prior appointment. The court first noted that appointment is not defined in the MEPC, and that therefore the court would have to give the word its usual meaning. The court determined that the designation of a voluntary personal representative constitutes an appointment given the general usage of the word. The court also noted that the statute does not limit the types of prior appointments that would trigger the exception, and so the exception should apply here. The court found support for its conclusion in the purpose of the time limit, namely to ensure that the existence of a will has been determined and that a state administration begins within three years of the decedent's death. A prior designation of a voluntary personal representative in the correct timeframe achieves this purpose. Finally, the court considered the overarching purpose of the relevant article of the MUPC. The court reasoned that this article was designed to allow estates to be administered in whichever way best suits the situation and that to not treat the designation of a voluntary personal representative as a prior appointment would disincentivize the use of voluntary personal representatives and thus counterproductively limit the options available for state administration under the article. 
the SJC then remanded for further proceedings. That concludes um, all, all of the cases reviewed by the New Developments Committee. So I'll now hand it over to Jason and Steve to, to discuss the tax law updates. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Emily. Um, yes, Jason and I are gonna handle the tax law updates. Uh, in particular, I'm gonna provide some updates on the federal and Massachusetts exemption amounts as well as a couple case updates that are relevant um, to some tax issues. And I'm gonna turn it over to Jason after that to discuss a little bit about the Corporate Transparency Act. So um, turning first to the increase in the federal estate tax and GST tax exemption amounts, um, the amount for 2024 has gone up by 690,000 over the 12.92 million that was in place for 2023, so that the new federal estate and GST tax exemption for 2024 will be 13.61 million per person. Um, in addition to the change in the federal estate and GST tax exemption, there's also an increase to the annual exclusion from 17,000 in 2023 to 18,000 in 2024. Um, and as a result of these increases, you'll have married taxpayers who are able to transfer up to just over $27 million without triggering any estate or gift tax. Um, and in terms of planning for clients, I know there's been, uh, I've encountered quite a few clients who have been putting off making large gifts because the decrease in exemption that's supposed to go into effect on January 1st, 2026 was several years away, but now we're getting into sort of the final two years of the higher exemption amount. So practitioners should certainly be asking or pushing their clients to consider whether making large gifts makes sense to take advantage of the, the higher exemption amounts. Um, in terms of the increase on the income tax side, um, all of the thresholds have gone up for individual married taxpayers and for trusts and estates. Um, on the trust and estates side of things, the top level income tax rate did go up. However, um, the trust and estates will still reach the, the sort of the, the top rate much faster than individual taxpayers. So uh, as in prior years, uh, trustees and attorneys should continue thinking about whether it makes sense to make distributions to beneficiaries to shift the income from the higher rate at the trust and the state level over to uh, the beneficiary who might be subject to uh, income tax at a lower rate. On the Massachusetts side of things, um, in October, Governor Healy did sign an act increasing the Massachusetts exemption uh, in Prior to the increase, the threshold was $1 million, and there was a uh, sort of an estate tax cliff where if you went over the million dollars, the entire amount was subject to Massachusetts estate tax. Uh, effective January 1, 2023, so retroactive to the beginning of last year, um, the filing threshold was doubled to $2 million. And instead of having that estate tax cliff feature, it is now more of a true exemption where the first $2 million will not be subject to Massachusetts estate tax. Um, as part of the same change to the tax law, Massachusetts also made an adjustment to um, how taxpayers can file their income tax returns. So prior to the change in the law, um, taxpayers, married taxpayers who filed their federal income tax returns jointly had the option in Massachusetts to file separate returns. And uh, 
there was an ability for taxpayers in light of the millionaire's tax to sort of divide their income between two taxpayers and under the right circumstances, avoid um, the millionaire's tax by splitting for Massachusetts purposes, even though they were filing uh, their income tax jointly for federal purposes. So effective January 1, 2024, Massachusetts has done away with the ability to um, elect to file separately if you file jointly. So now going forward, if you if Mass if a Massachusetts married couple files their federal income tax returns jointly, they must file their federal income their Massachusetts income tax returns jointly as well. Um, and in terms of how this um, is playing out, you know, I think there's been a number of clients who have, as a result of the millionaire's tax, decided to try to move out of Massachusetts. And um, part of the rationale for increasing the estate tax exemption is to encourage people to stay here now that the exemptions doubled. However, um, the fact that Massachusetts is trying to close a loophole with respect to the millionaire's tax seems to undermine somewhat the narrative that um, the changes in the tax law are meant to make Massachusetts more competitive. Um, so just uh, something to think about in terms of um, the income tax and uh, state tax planning for, for Massachusetts residents. Um, another quick note on a, a change on the, the federal side. Um, in July of 2023, the IRS issued notice 2023-54 um, that provided some relief with respect to um, the change in required beginning date for minimum required distributions um, that was going to result from the Secure Act 2.0. Um, what the notice did was essentially say that they would not penalize a defined contribution plan that failed to um, make a required minimum distribution in 2023 or a taxpayer who failed to take a required minimum distribution in 2023. Um, in effect, the IRS is saying that they'll be issuing final regulations on the required beginning date sometime in 2024. Um, this is sort of a continuation of a pattern that happened in 2022, where the IRS anticipated coming out with the final regulations in 2023, but they never came out. So sort of hoping that the regulations come out in 2024, but um, sort of remains to be seen whether that'll that'll actually play out. Um, I wanted to touch quickly on uh, a state tax valuation case that came up out of the Eighth Circuit. Um, the Connolly versus United States. Uh, in that case, there were two brothers who were the sole shareholders of a corporation um, to make sure that the uh, transition of the ownership went smoothly in the case of the death of one of the brothers. The company of the brothers entered into a stock purchase agreement uh, under which if one of the brothers died, the surviving brother would first have the right to buy the shares. And in the event the brother declined to buy the shares, the company itself would redeem them. Um, the agreement provided a couple different mechanisms for valuing uh, the shares. Uh, one, the brothers could uh, use some uh, agreement they would sign at the, ever, at the end of every tax year setting the price per share. Um, the other 
mechanism was to get two or more appraisals to set the fair market value. Um, the brothers never, never moved forward with either mechanism. So there was never any written agreement uh, on the share value and there was never any appraisal that was done. Um, in order to fund this redemption, the company went out and bought life insurance policies on both of the brothers so there'd be sufficient funds to fund the redemption. Um, one of the brothers died in 2013 and the company received the life insurance proceeds. Thereafter, the company redeemed the brother for uh, $3 million and set the company's value at $3.8 million based on the, the brother's ownership interest. There was never any uh, appraisal obtained of the shares and uh, the redemption price was set basically by the remaining shareholder brother and the primary beneficiary of the deceased brother's estate. Um, and in filing the estate tax return, the uh, the estate listed the redemption price as the fair market value of the brother's shares. Um, when the IRS audited the estate tax return, they determined that the estate had undervalued the shares by relying on the redemption price um, and that it was not the fair market value. Uh, instead, the IRS took the position that the estate should have included the insurance proceeds in valuing the company. And once those insurance proceeds were taken into account, the value was increased by about $3 million. So the IRS found a deficiency of $1 million. Um, the district court ended up granting summary judgment to the IRS and the estate ultimately appealed to the Eighth Circuit. Um, the Eighth Circuit considered that the, the principal issue that the Eighth Circuit was concerned with was whether the value of the life insurance proceeds should be included in the value of the shares. Um, they, the, the, the circuit court got past the threshold issue of um, the estate's argument that the stock purchase agreement set the um, price because as I mentioned before, the brothers never bothered to move forward with either mechanism in that agreement in terms of determining either a, a, a share price or going out getting appraisal. So the, the circuit court felt that um, the brothers couldn't rely on the stock purchase agreement in terms of setting the fair market value. Uh, and then on the specific question of whether the life insurance proceeds should have been included um, as part of valuing the company, um, the court first pointed out that the 11th circuit had decided that life insurance proceeds were not um, accounted, that life insurance proceeds are already accounted for in the case of a redemption because they are treated as an asset of the estate with an off, an identical offsetting liability to the redeem the shares. So the 11th circuit had said that you have an asset and you have a liability such that there's no net change to the value of the company. The Eighth Circuit ended up breaking with the Eleventh Circuit and decided that the redemption obligation was not an obligation in an ordinary business sense. And they pointed out the fact that in their view, a hypothetical willing seller would take into account the fact that the company was going to get the life insurance proceeds before determining the purchase price. So as a result of the Eighth Circuit's decision not to include the, or, sorry, the Eighth Circuit's decision to include the life insurance proceeds in the value versus the 11th Circuit's decision 
not to include them. We now have a split between two circuit courts and the Supreme Court has granted cert in order to actually take up the case and review it. So hopefully sometime soon we'll have a more definitive answer on whether the life insurance proceeds should be taken into account in the context of the valuation of a closely held business. Um, and then before I turn things over to Jason, I just want to highlight two um, cases or, or two situations that I would put into the category of sort of uh, planning opportunities pushed by promoters or marketers that um, practitioners should be wary about. Um, the first came up in the case of McGowan versus United States, which is a district court case from the Northern District of Ohio. Um, and that involved a restricted property trust. Um, the, 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 the structure of a restricted property trust is somewhat convoluted. And I would urge anyone who's interested in the topic to take a close look at the, the facts in the McGowan case, just to get an understanding of the structure. But in essence, it is a way of having a person in a closely held business get a transfer tax and an income tax benefit um, from a life insurance policy that's being treated in a particular way um, to get around transfer tax and income tax treatment that you would typically see in a split dollar life insurance arrangement. And the, the, the main takeaway of what the district court did in the McGowan case was say, you know, despite the sort of bells and whistles that um, practitioners put in or promoters put in place in order to claim these these tax benefits. Um, in essence, the restricted property trust is a split dollar life insurance arrangement and should be subject to the regulations, thereby undermining a lot of the income tax and estate ta gift tax benefit that um, promoters were pushing. Um, and the other sort of um, planning opportunity that some promoters are pushing that I would put into the category of too good to be true was addressed in a chief counsel memorandum 2023-006. Um, in that memorandum, the IRS considered a, a structure that's described as a non-grantor, irrevocable, complex, discretionary spend trust that is, quote, section 643 compliant. Um, and uh, essentially what promoters were arguing is that under um, code section 643A3, you've got language saying that gains from the sale or exchange of capital assets shall be excluded to the extent that such gains are allocated to corpus and not paid or credited to a beneficiary in a taxable year. And these promoters were suggesting that um, you can use section 643 to basically get a particular trust, trust structure completely out of um, uh, out of the income tax regime such that there's no income tax or very little income tax paid on the structure. Um, the IRS sort of looked closely at it and said that the promoters who are pushing this sort of section 643 compliant trust structure are completely misreading that code section. Um, 643 deals with distributable net income and doesn't real, it, it does not address taxable income at all. It's uh, designed to basically make sure that you've got um, 
you're limiting the amount that a trust can deduct for distribution so that income tax is taxed either at the trust or at the beneficiary level. If a trust fails to include capital gains or extraordinary dividends in income under 643, it does not mean that those items escape taxation. It just means it'll not be included in DNI. And so instead of being taxed to the beneficiary, it'll still get taxed at the trust level. Um, and uh, at sort of at the end of this memorandum, the IRS pointed out that this is a fundamental misunderstanding that the promoters are pushing in their materials and the IRS is urging that um, there should be examinations of any trusts that are purporting to, to sort of take advantage of, um, of this scheme. Um, so with that, I will uh, turn things over to Jason to talk about the Corporate Transparency Act. All right, thank you, Stephen. Uh, so again, my name is Jason Benitez. I'm an associate at Goodwin Proctor. Uh, and as Stephen said, I'll be providing a, a high-level overview of the final FinCEN regulations implementing the Corporate Transparency Act, the CTA. So starting at a high level, you may know that the CTA requires certain business entities called reporting companies to uh, file a report with information on their beneficial owners with the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, known as FinCEN. So this raises a number of questions, uh, including which entities are required to file, who is a beneficial owner, when must the reports be filed, and what information is required to be reported. So I'll start with the definition of reporting companies. Uh, so for domestic companies, um, you know, a domestic reporting company is any corporation, limited liability company, or other entity that is created by the filing of a document with a secretary of state or a similar office of a U.S. state or tribe. So domestic corporations, LLPs, LPs, LLCs, and statutory trusts will generally be considered reporting companies whereas domestic general partnerships and importantly, non-statutory trusts will generally not be reporting companies. Uh, and so reporting companies also include entities formed under the laws of uh, foreign jurisdiction, but that register to do business in any US state or tribal jurisdiction, again, by a filing of a document with a secretary of state or other similar office uh, of a US state or tribe. That being said, uh, even if an, an entity meets these requirements, there are 23 pretty broad exceptions under which an entity that would otherwise be a reporting company avoids needing to file a beneficial ownership report. Uh, I won't go into each of these, um, but generally these exceptions cover entities that are subject to other public or governmental oversight, such as uh, large operating companies, banks, uh, insurance companies, and tax exempt entities. The theory sort of being that this information is provided elsewhere and that there's, there's sufficient oversight um, th through other means. So uh, what is a beneficial owner? Um, so a beneficial owner is any individual who directly or indirectly either exercises substantial control over a reporting company or owns or controls 25% or more of the ownership interests of a reporting company. Uh, so all the beneficial owners must be reported 
And FinCEN does expect that each reporting company will have at least one beneficial owner. Uh, you know, so if you have a situation where, uh, you know, owned equally by five individuals, 20% each, you might think, well, that doesn't trigger the 25% uh, ownership or control. But, uh, you know, there, there must be someone with substantial control, whether that's a, a senior officer or uh, someone with significant voting power. Um, so an individual exercises substantial control over a reporting company. If the individual, uh, for example, serves as a senior officer, uh, has authority over the appointment or removal of any senior officer or uh, a majority of the board of directors, uh, or has uh, substantial influence over important decisions, uh, or has any other form of substantial control. So that's that's quite broad. Uh, getting into the details just a little bit, um, a senior officer is any individual holding the position or exercising you know, similar authority to president, CFO, general counsel, CEO, chief operating officer, uh, you know, really any, any senior officer who perform, performs similar functions. And in terms of um, having substantial influence over important decisions, important decisions include things uh, such as the reorganization, dissolution, or merger of a reporting company, uh, the selection or termination of business lines or business ventures, compensation schemes and incentive plans for senior officers, uh, amendments of any substantial governance stocks, um, any, anything of that nature uh, could really be considered important decisions that uh, if, if one has substantial influence over them, they might be considered a beneficial owner. And so what, what's uh, might be important for many of us here is how this relates uh, to ownership interests held in trust. So any person serving as a trustee uh, and any person with authority to dispose of trust assets is considered to have uh, ownership or control. So for example, a distribution uh, advisor uh, would be considered a person having ownership or control over the trust assets, even if that role is not defined as a uh, fiduciary under the relevant state law. So also uh, a beneficiary of a trust may be deemed a beneficial owner uh, if that beneficiary uh, is the sole permissible recipient of trust income in principle or has the right to demand distribution or withdrawal of substantially all the trust assets. Uh, in addition, a grantor or a settlor uh, having the right to revoke the trust or withdraw trust assets uh, is considered to own or control ownership interests held in the trust. It's currently uh, unclear as to whether a grantor holding a power to substitute uh, his or her individual assets or assets in the trust of equivalent value would be deemed to own or control the interests uh, held in the trust. So that is something to uh, keep an eye on. And uh, there are a few exemptions from the definition of a beneficial owner, uh, all you know, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, a minor child, for example, although the information of a parent or guardian uh, must be reported. Uh, an individual acting as a nominee, intermediary, custodian, or agent, uh, an individual acting solely as an employee of an entity, 
other than you know a, a senior officer uh, or an individual whose interest in an entity is uh, through a future right of inheritance as opposed to a present interest that a person uh, has already acquired through inheritance. Uh, so important to keep an eye on, on some of those uh, exceptions from that definition. So moving on to when are these reports due? Uh, so it has really already come into effect uh, for entities created or registered after January 1, 2024. So how it works is that any reporting companies that were created or registered prior to January 1, 2024 must file an initial report uh, no later than January 1 of 2025. Uh, so that, you know, they, they have this year to kind of get things in order. Uh, and importantly, they do not have to report information with respect to any company applicant. Now, a, uh, a company applicant is the person who directly files the document that created or, or first registered the reporting company. So oftentimes you know, that can rope in uh, partners at a law firm or, or uh, you know, other professionals that are, are doing that filing on the entity's behalf. Uh, so given that, you know, we weren't really aware of this requirement, uh, entities uh, that were created uh, before Jan 1 of this year don't have to report the company applicant information. Uh, moving on to more recently created companies, any reporting company created or registered on or after Jan 1 of this year, an initial report is due within 90 calendar days uh, of the, the formation or the registration. Uh, it's also important to remember that updated reports must be filed within 30 calendar days after the date of a change concerning the reporting company or its beneficial owners. Um, so, you know, in, important to make sure that clients are keeping you abreast of any, any changes that might need to be reported. Uh, and the reports are made uh, using an e-filing system uh, on the um, FinCEN website. Uh, there's either, you can either do it via a fillable online form uh, or you can download a PDF and then uh, fill that out and upload it uh, at a later time. So what information needs to be uh, reported on that form? For the reporting company, uh, the full legal name and any trade name or doing business name, the street address that is the uh, principal place of business, uh, jurisdiction of formation, uh, and the tax identification number. For each beneficial owner, uh, you must report the full legal name, the date of birth, the residential street address, uh, and a unique, unique identifying number um, that the issuing jurisdiction, uh, uh, you know, so from a US passport, driver's license, some other form of identification document uh, issued by a state, local, or tribal jurisdiction. Um, or if none of those are available, then a non-expired passport issued by a, a foreign jurisdiction. You will also need to include an image of the document from which that unique identifying number was obtained. Uh, so obviously this, this includes some, um, you know, some personal information. Uh, and so it's important to note that uh, in order 
to avoid having to give out this personal information, um, you know, for example, to each company that you might be a beneficial owner of, or that your clients might be a beneficial owner of, you can apply for what's called a FinCEN identifier. Uh, so basically individuals are able to submit the required information uh, just one time directly to FinCEN, and then you obtain a unique identifier number that you basically just fill in uh, on the on the reports rather than having to provide that information each time. Uh, that also uh, makes things easier in terms of updating information. If you move, for example, all you have to do is update FinCEN the one time and you're, you're covered. Um, so for, for those that might end up uh, having to provide information for a lot of these, these reports, that's a, a great thing to get a great option to keep in mind. Uh, and then similarly for company applicants, uh, which again, company applicant information only needs to be provided on entities uh, formed after Jan 1 of, of this year. Uh, so same thing, legal name, date of birth, uh, business street address, and then a unique identifying number from a passport, driver's license, et cetera, and then an image of that document as well. So there, there really is a lot of information to parse through here. And uh, quite frankly, there's still a lot of open questions, uh, but there are some remarkably helpful resources on the FinCEN website, including an extensive FAQ and a uh, small entity compliance guide. Uh, so definitely, um, you know, de definitely keep those resources in mind as these issues arise. Um, and, you know, I'll check just now to see, it looks like we have a question. Uh, how does an estate planning trust qualify as a reporting company? Assume the trust is not created by filing a document with a state agency. So, uh, a non-statutory trust, you know, for example, just a revocable trust uh, created for estate planning purposes would not be a reporting company. Uh, it very well could be a beneficial owner of a reporting company, in which case that reporting company will need to know uh, the, the trust, uh, the trust information, whether that's the trustee, beneficiary, grantor, uh, as I explained a little bit earlier, they'll need that information, but the, the trust itself uh, would not be a reporting company. Uh, so unless there are any other questions, I will pass it off to Susan. Thank you. So I'm Susan Robb. I am counsel at Day Pitney, along with Megan Knox. I'm a co-chair of the Public Policy Committee of the Trust and Estates section here at the BBA. I'm going to give a legislative and public policy update. Um, we are halfway through the current two-year legislative session that started on January 4th, 2023. So for anyone who's counting, we're in the second annual session of the 193rd legislature. Um, I'm gonna cover three things today. Um, recently enacted legislation, which I will touch on briefly. Steve did a great job uh, going through that for us already. Um, I'm going to go over pending legislation and then a couple other items. Um, just a quick note on the materials um, for any of the pending legislation. I did um, try to provide the um, House and or Senate bill numbers. 
Um, and any of those can be found on the Mass Legislature's website. Um, a quick Google search will pull up a number of things, but right among the top results should be um, something from the Mass Legislature's website if you want to look at the text of any of those bills um, or see who the sponsors were um, or learn any more information about them. Um, so kicking things off, um, just with one extra little tidbit on the Massachusetts tax package that Steve had discussed um, that went into law last or signed into law last October, um, we know the estate tax threshold increased. Um, we got some clarity on the millionaires tax and how returns uh, need to be filed. Um, there was also a change to the short term capital gains tax rate. So of course, short term cap gains tax dealing with um, things that have been held for less than a year. Um, the new law cut the tax rate for short short term cap gains from 12% down to 8.5%. Um, similar to the estate tax, that change is effective for taxable years beginning on or after January 1st, 2023. So it does go back to the beginning of last year. Um, important to note, long-term capital gains tax rate was not impacted and that remains unchanged. That's at 5%. Um, so I'm now going to move on to some pending legislation that we are tracking. Um, for those of you who have attended either the mid-year review or year in review um, in prior years, a lot of this is going to sound familiar. Um, the legislative process is um, slow and deliberate sometimes. Um, so the first thing we're following is decanting, um, specifically an act relative to the Massachusetts Uniform Trust Decanting Act. Um, the BBA has supported this bill and has testified on it in, in the past. Um, it's also likely to be supported by the Mass Bar Association and Mass Bankers Association. Um, a hearing was held last Halloween. Uh, you'll notice that um, the end of October and right through the middle of um, November, there were a lot of hearings on our trust and states related bills. Um, so a little background here, um, what is decanting? Um, so much like it sounds um, with wine being decanted from a bottle into, a, into a, another vessel, um, decanting of trust assets is the distribution of assets from one trust into a second trust. So a trustee can exercise a broad discretionary power to distribute assets to or for the benefit of one or more beneficiaries of an existing trust. And they can actually create a new trust or trusts for the benefit of those beneficiaries. Decanting can be a really useful strategy um, if you're trying to change the terms of an outdated trust, um, maybe providing for a beneficiary who's become disabled, um, but it can also sometimes defeat a settlor's intent. And so, so there are sometimes concerns um, surrounding that. And in a lot of uh, states, we've seen um, statutes that have actually put some provisions and framework in place for decanting. So there are 29 states that provide for statutory decanting. Of those, about 15 have enacted some version of the Uniform Act. Um, other states such as New York have their own statutory versions that are not based on the Uniform Act at all. Um, Massachusetts um, is among a minority of states where we allow for decanting under our common law. Um, we are also one of three states where the Uniform Act has been introduced but not enacted. Um, so 
this act, um, in addition to being supported by the BBA, is supported by the Independent Standing Committee on Massachusetts legislation relating to wills, trusts, estates, and fiduciary administration. Um, that's kind of a mouthful. So going forward, you may hear me refer to the Standing Committee. That's the committee I'm talking about. Um, this is a group of individuals who are knowledgeable in trusts and estates who can provide an independent perspective. They are separate and apart from any bar associations. Uh, so that standing committee reviewed uh, the uniform model language in the decanting act, uniform decanting act, um, and they developed a specific version of the act for Massachusetts. So what does the current bill propose? Um, it proposes this would be inserted right into the Massachusetts Uniform Trust Code, um, I believe is article ninth. Um, it would add some clarity, clarity and certainty um, as to the validity of decanting. Um, it would not replace the common law ability to decant. So this would be in addition to decanting that's currently allowed under the craft and ferry cases. Um, it provides guidance on uh, fully discretionary decanting um, and when trustees can decant from a fully discretionary trust into another trust, um, there are a couple of restrictions. They can't include a new beneficiary or a new a new current beneficiary or new remainder beneficiary. They also cannot reduce or eliminate a vested interest. They can change a power of appointment. Um, the bill also provides guidance on whether trustees can decant when there is an ascertainable standard, so restricted for health, education, maintenance, support. Um, also provides guidance on when decanting is available to the trustees of special needs trusts, charitable trusts, and pet trusts. Um, you can decant certain trusts that have tax advantages, um, but the bill specifically notes that if you decant a marital trust, charitable trust, S-corp trust, GST exempt trust, any other tax specific trusts, um, you cannot decant them into a trust that eliminates those tax advantages. So those tax advantages would have to remain in place um, and be a component of the new trust. Um, we don't know what will happen with decanting. It's something that the BBA is, is really interested in um, and we will continue to focus on it and to support that. The next thing we're gonna talk about is the um, fiduciary access to digital assets. Um, there are a couple of different bills out there um, among them is the revised Uniform Fiduciary Access to Digital Assets Act, affectionately known as RUFADA. Um, so that's the one I'm going to focus on. Um, but I did list all three of the bills that are out there um, in the materials if anyone wants to see how they differ. Um, this also had a hearing held um, on October 31st. Um, the BBA has endorsed RUFADA. Again, this is another one we have in the past testified in support of. Um, the Mass Bar and Mass Bankers have also endorsed this bill. So a little bit of history here. Um, Rufato was originally um, promulgated in response to what was perceived as a lack of guidance um, with what happens to a person's digital assets when they die or become incapacitated. Um, at that time, um, there was little to no statutory guidance. Um, and case law, or sometimes there was case law that seemed kind of unfavorable or restrictive. Um, so Rufata creates a formal process to determine a fiduciary's authority to access digital assets while also balancing privacy concerns 
and limiting unwarranted disclosure of private communications. Um, to date, 48 states, Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Virgin Islands have adopted RUFATA or a similar statute. Um, Massachusetts is one of the holdouts. So Oklahoma and Massachusetts are the holdouts. Um, the majority of those states have adopted RUFATA, but some of them do have other statutory provisions that are different from that Uniform Act. Um, that Massachusetts Standing Committee I mentioned earlier um, has recommended that we adopt RUFATA with very few modifications, um, none of which are really sub substantive. So a couple things about the law, uh, the proposed law. It governs fiduciaries. Um, so we're talking about personal representatives of estates, conservators, attorneys in fact, trustees. Um, it applies only to electronic records in which an individual has a property right or interest. It doesn't include the, the underlying asset. Um, so what do I mean by that? For instance, this would govern um, access to bank statements online, but not access to the actual assets in the account itself. Um, it applies to wills, powers of attorney, trusts, um, and estates. Um, the bill outlines what a fiduciary would need to provide to a custodian um, or service provider and what the custodian can demand from the fiduciary before they re actually release um, the access to the digital assets. Um, the bill also is clear about when language should be included um, and expressly granted to an agent. So for instance, in a power of attorney, trust, um, conservatorship, the language in the ins instrument should expressly grant the agent authority over the content of electronic communications. Um, so for anyone who hasn't already been including that when they're drafting, um, it's something you may want to start doing. Um, I know we here at Day Pitney include that in our powers of attorney and also um, in our uh, wills and trusts as well. The next bill we are following is relative to the elective share. Um, so this is talking about the rights of a surviving spouse um, who has been left out of his or her spouse's estate plan. Um, the BBA has supported this bill. Again, we've testified on this. Um, once again, our friends at the Mass Bar Association have also supported this bill, um, as has the Women's Bar Association. Um, this one had a hearing held on November 14th. Um, we've also seen this bill before. Um, last session, I believe it went to study. Um, going to study can sometimes mean that's where a bill is gonna, gonna go to die and it's not really gonna make a lot of progress. Um, other times it seems to get studied and then come right back the next session. Um, I don't know what will happen here, but a little bit of background. Um, as you may know, under current law, a spouse who wants to um, take their elective share um, can claim an interest in one third of the deceased spouse's estate if there are descendants, um, one half if there are no descendants, um, and that's made up of probate assets and assets in a funded uh, revocable trust. They get the first $25,000 outright, the remainder in the form of a life estate. Um, what the bill does is it changes the calculation that's used to determine uh, the elective share. Uh, the share is a sum of all of the couple's relevant assets. It's multiplied by a percentage based on the length of the marriage. So um, that reflects the equitable, equitable 
distribution system that's utilized in divorce um, and brings this more in line with that. Um, the bill includes a detailed discussion of what assets should be included in the so-called augmented estate um, to be used for the calculation of assets owed to the surviving spouse. Um, liability in terms of tax apportionment, liability is apportioned among the other recipients of the decedent's net probate estate, and that portion of is non-probate transfers to others um, in proportion to the value of their interest therein. Um, if the spouse wants to um, take the elective share, this bill provides that that must be filed within nine months of the date of death. Um, it also uh, provides that the right can be waived by a valid prenup. Um, so we'll see what happens with that one. Um, another one we have seen before um, and continue to follow um, is uh, an act relating to tax basis. So this um, relates to the 2010 so-called basis mismatch. Um, for those of you who've been in practice a while, you may remember 2010 was that year um, when we didn't have a federal estate tax. Um, and so this is called an act to continue tax basis rules for property acquired from decedents. Um, the BBA supports this bill, has testified on it um, in the past. Um, so what this bill is designed to do is to avoid making property passing on death during that 2010 window subject to both state estate tax and state capital gains tax um, upon sale by beneficiaries. So clearly that, you know, anyone who's died in, in 2010, that was quite some time ago, but where would this come up? You could have surviving spouse um, may recently, have, you know, soon to pass away, has recently passed away. You could have beneficiaries who are now um, selling assets that they have inherited. Um, so under the bill, beneficiaries could get a step up in basis, but the property would be subject to the Massachusetts estate tax. Um, hearing was held on this last June. Um, in the last session, this went to the House Ways and Means Committee. We'll see what happens with it here. Um, another uh, bill that we are following, another one we've seen in the past, um, I'm not sure where it'll go this time, is a bill on unitrusts. Um, so this is called an act relative to total return unitrusts. Um, the BBA is following this. We have not taken a position on it. Um, we haven't seen this one in a couple of sessions. I'd say it's probably been about 12 or 15 years, but we have seen it before. Um, the last time it was, it was sponsored by a Republican. This time it was sponsored by a Democrat. Um, I don't know if that will make a whole lot of difference in taking action on it. Um, we'll see. Um, but interestingly, um, the bill is almost unchanged from the last time we saw it. And so the sections to which the bill refers were actually repealed with the passage of the uh, Massachusetts Uniform Probate Code in 2008. And those were later changed again with the passage of the Massachusetts Uniform Trust Code in 2012. Um, so I don't know how uh, well thought out this was when it was um, refiled this session um, because it wasn't updated to take either of those into account. Um, the other reason we're not sure this is gonna go anywhere is that earlier this month, um, Representative Cutler, who's the Democrat who had filed it, um, was named to a new position um, in the Healy Driscoll administration. Um, and so he has left his seat in the House. Um, what would this bill do? It would um, add a new section uh, to 
what was chapter 203 would now presumably be um, the section of 203 that deals with the um, Uniform Principle and Income Act, um, and it would define and govern total return unit trusts, um, including conversions and the powers and authority of trustees um, to convert. Um, there are other states that in their Uniform Principle and Income Act have this unit trust provision. Massachusetts has not adopted that in the past. And so um, what a trustee can do in Massachusetts instead is that um, they have the ability to determine what's principal, what's income, but we don't actually have a unit trust election statute. So we'll see where that one goes, if anywhere, um, given the facts surrounding it. Another bill um, we are following is a special bill about special needs trusts for seniors. Um, this is an act to preserve special needs trusts for disabled seniors. Um, the BBA is interested in this. We're following it. We have not taken a position on this bill. Um, what does the bill actually say? Um, it says that the division shall transfer, shall consider a transfer of assets by an individual 65 or older or a transfer made for the sole benefit of an individual 65 or older into a trust pursuant to 42 USC 1396 D4C, sometimes known as a D4 trust, established for the sole benefit of said individual to be a disposal of resources for fair market value. So said another way, the transfer to a 1396 D4C trust is not treated as a disposal of resources for less than fair market value. Um, we're not sure what's gonna happen with this one. It was filed, a similar bill was filed in prior sessions. And at that time, the prior bill was vetoed by Governor Baker who had concerns and thought that federal Medicaid law prohibited the use of special needs trusts as a way to avoid Medicaid eligibility rules that otherwise apply. And he was concerned that mass health would be out of compliance with federal law and possibly put um, federal financial participation at risk. Um, so we don't know what's gonna happen here. Um, there are certainly many groups um, who deal with special needs trusts and deal with um, elder law who are very interested in seeing this move forward. Um, we don't know. We're also follow filing, following, excuse me, an act relative to healthcare proxies. Um, this one was also included in that hearing on October 31st. Um, and what this bill states is that a proxy would remain in effect and not be revoked due to the death of the principal until six months from the time the principal is deceased. So this is an interesting one. Obviously, you cannot make healthcare decisions for someone who's deceased, um, but there may be some benefits uh, to permitting the healthcare agent to have access, um, for instance, under HIPAA regulations um, for that six month period. So we will see um, where this one goes. Um, we are also following um, a caregiver affidavits, an act relative to caregiver authorization affidavits. Um, this one also had a November hearing. Um, in the last session, it went to um, 
House third reading, um, which means it got pretty far. Um, we'll see what happens with it this time. Um, the BBA is interested in this one. We have not taken a formal position. Um, groups supporting this bill are Mass Law Reform Institute, um, the Justice Center of Southeastern Mass, um, AmeriCorps Legal Advocates of Mass. Um, what does this bill do? So similar to a um, guardian provision in a will, what this, uh, what this bill would do is allow a parent or guardian to authorize a designated caregiver for minor, a minor child or children for a limited period of time. Um, speaking of guardians, we are also um, following an act relating to guardians. So this is an act improving medical decision making um, and also an act further regulating the appointment of cer certain guardians. Um, all of these are currently uh, being studied. Um, the BBA um, is interested in them. We have not taken a position in them. Um, so what do some of these do? Um, again, there are a couple different uh, bills that have been filed, um, but sort of the general takeaway is that they allow for temporary or appointed guardians to be paid for reasonable expenses, including compensation and counsel fees as determined by the court and paid either out of the estate or by the plaintiff petitioner or the Commonwealth. Um, that wraps up all of the legislation that we are currently tracking. Um, and um, I'm gonna move on to a couple of other items. So. There are a couple prior bills that have not been refiled this session, but I do just want to mention them. Um, if they, you know, if we hear anything on them, we will certainly let everyone know. Um, I think at this point, it's probably unlikely with where we are. Um, last session, we were following a bill that was uh, dealt with the registers of probate, and it was designed to shift uh, much of the administrative and um, personnel authority within the probate and family court away from judicial leadership and actually towards elected registers. Um, the BBA had come out in opposition to this bill. Um, as of right now, I'm not sure we expect to see this one again. I will get to the why on that in just a minute, um, but we haven't seen that refiled. Um, we also have not seen any corrections to the Adopted Children's Act. Um, we've seen this one in the past. It's been kind of lingering around uh, for many years. Um, there's some history here. Um, in 1958, the Mass Legislature changed the statutory presumption for construing a will or trust from requiring express inclusion of adopted descendants to requiring express exclusion. Um, and it, but it would apply to instruments executed only after its effective date in 1958. In 2008, with the passage of the Uniform Probate Code, the legislature adopted a rule that the presumption would apply to all instruments whenever executed. In 2012, the SJC said, wait a second, that 2008 reversal was not reasonable. You could have people who made other provisions based on the laws in effect at the time and the work that's been in their now irrevocable estate planning documents is going to be undone with this new rule. Um, so the 2008 law is still on the books. This bill would codify the SJC's ruling um, that the retroactive presumption is not effective. So that's bills that we 
um, had tracked in the past. We'll see what happens. I, I don't think we're going to see either one of them again this session based on where we are, but we will see. Um, the next thing we followed is the crisis uh, in the probate family court. For any of you who um, file with the court, you know that some things take longer than others, um, and not all of our counties move at the same speed or have the same staffing, um, which many times is, is not their own fault. It's because of a lack of access to funds. Um, so in 2017, then Chief Justice Gantz identified this crisis in the court. Um, he observed that in addition to kind of a, a lack of staffing, um, part of the cause of this problem is what probate and family court judges deal with. And that a lot of judges and other courts have to understand a single transaction or event. But in the probate and family court, a judge must understand not only a single transaction or event, but each family's entire history, including the relationship between the spouses, their abilities as parents, the needs of their children, or in some guardianship cases, the needs of an elderly parent or a drug addicted adult child. The judges must also determine each family's income, assets, and potential financial resources, including their capacity to earn. So it's so much more than just understanding one transaction. Obviously, that's going to lead to a backlog given the time that has to be spent on each probate or family court case. So beginning in 2018, um, new, newly appointed Chief Justice Casey um, has worked to resolve this crisis. Um, he's advocated for additional judges in the probate and family court, as well as the allocation of other resources. Um, the legislature and the governor have heeded this call and have shown their support, which is terrific, um, of the court's pressing needs. And they've included funding for eight additional probate and family court judges in the fiscal year 2024 budget. And I am thrilled to report that as of earlier this month, three women of color have been nominated to the bench. Um, I don't know if we yet have any word on the additional five appointees, um, but three out of eight is terrific um, and three women of color even more so. Um, switching gears, uh, we're also tracking some new proposed changes from the SJC. Um, the SJC has proposed changes to um, Civil Procedure Rule 11, and that would allow for the use of electronic signatures on court filings. Um, Lawyers Weekly has had some information about this. Again, a quick Google search. Um, I didn't include anything in the materials other than, um, actually, I didn't include anything in the materials, but if, for anyone who wants to take a quick look at it, um, it's proposed changes from the SJC to Civil Procedure Rule 11. The deadline for comments is February 29th. Um, and right now, I, speaking of my own practice, you know, I think many of us, especially on trust matters, default to wet ink signatures, either because we know the court won't take something that's not wet ink or we're not sure. And so we just don't want to run the risk of something not being accepted. Um, it's possible some of us are being overly cautious, um, but maybe we'll finally have some clarity um, with these proposed changes. Um, the last thing um, I want to go over uh, before I hand things back to Maggie, um, is an issue that's come up for some of us in practice um, with estate tax returns um, at the state level, so with the mass DOR. Um, and that's where um, the marital home, um, which is either 100% held or partly held 
by a credit shelter trust that was created at the death of the first spouse to die um, is now sometimes being included in the gross estate of the surviving spouse. Um, and for many of us, that seems contrary to you know, how we've advised our clients, where if the marital home is a significant asset, we have advised them to um, have that be part of the funding of the credit shelter trust um, for the mass exemption, formerly 1 million, now two, um, at the death of the first spouse. Um, the issue um, is that um, there are certain cases where the MDOR at the death, after the death of the surviving spouse, sends a notice of intent to assess um, and states that under 2036, um, because the surviving spouse had continued possession and enjoyment um, of the marital home, that that should actually be, that should be either, whether it's 50%, 100%, uh, depending on the circumstances, should be included um, in the gross estate of the surviving spouse. Um, so if anyone has had this come up in their practice and would like to discuss it more, um, the BBA is involved in a couple of, I guess, sort of task forces that are working on better understanding this and facilitating conversations with the DOR. Um, you are more than welcome to email me directly. Um, I'm Susan Robb um, at Day Pitney. My email address is srobb at daypitney.com. Um, and you're welcome to um, send your story without, you know, without any identifying details for your client, but speak with me about it. And I'd be happy to, you know, kind of make a note of that and make sure it's on our radar and something that we can think about discussing with the DOR. Um, and with that, Maggie, I'm going to turn things over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Thanks to you and to all of our speakers. Um, I just want to check here, make sure that there aren't any other questions. Okay, it looks like there's no more further questions from our participants. If you do have any questions, I can give a minute um, and see if there's any follow-up based on any of these updates that we've discussed today. Um, we did get one question here. Any word on how um, the Secretary of State is doing with remote notarization? Um, I haven't heard anything. Um, Susan, have you heard any rumblings on this? I, I don't have any updates on that, unfortunately. unfortunately. Um, we will look into it. I, I have not heard any rumblings recently. Um, I'll make sure that even if our update is no update, uh, <laughs> that we can you know, mention something um, next time we get together for the, the end of your review. But um, when I last checked, we had not heard anything. Yeah, same here. Thanks, Susan. All right, so with that, if there are no other questions, I would like to thank everybody who attended this program. Um, and thanks again to all of our speakers and the committees who worked so hard to put these materials together. Um, everyone who registered should have received a copy of the materials for today's program. If you did not, please reach out to the BBA. Um, with that, I hope this program was helpful to everyone. Enjoy the rest of your week.